0: Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. Um, my name is Matthew. I'm the lead pastor here at Emmanuel. And if we haven't met, um, and I see a bunch of you that I haven't met, I would love to say, hey, afterwards, maybe we can find uh, each other. Um, it's wonderful to be with you today at church. I was thinking this week as I was prepping my sermon that I've never taught on the 4th of July before, cause like, like because of leap years, the last time this happened was like 11 years ago, that Sunday was July 4th. Anyway, um, and I was probably at the beach. So it, I was like, what do I want to say? Because how, do we, how we think about this as Christians, I think, is really important. How we think about a day like today, but really all that it represents. Of course, it, it is Independence Day. It's the day when the people of our country celebrate the birth, the founding of our country. And probably many of you today are going to uh, do things around that. Fireworks and flags. And I see one person with a Peachtree Road Race shirt on. I was running yesterday and proud supportive of sweat and whatever various things we were supporting in that run. And it's like, these are all things that we do this time of year. We eat food, we gather with people, and it's, it's good. There's nothing, nothing particularly uh, wrong with that. There are churches that tend to, to make days like today, uh, patriotic celebrations, um, times to bring out all the flags and sing God Bless America and talk about the exceptionalism of, of our country and um, and I'll just say for the record, this probably shouldn't surprise any of you, but I think that's really weird and wrong. I don't think it has any place in the church. You'll never come in here and see an American flag in this building, uh, kind of over my dead body. It's like this is just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's at one hand, like it's at, at least it's misguided. It's—it's it's historically and biblically misguided to equate sort of the anointed nation of Israel in the Bible with any modern-day state, including America, including the modern state of Israel. It's just misguided historically, theologically. But I think even more dangerous, it's uh, syncretistic. It's taking two things that don't belong together and making like a monster out of them. So it's taking Christianity and nationalism and what's left on the other side is no longer Christian. It's just God-washed uh, patriotism. And, um, you know, if you, if you look at the Bible in the New Testament, which is sort of our, like, guide, you won't find anywhere in there where pride of place is taught. In fact, the exact opposite is taught in the New Testament examples in Jesus and Paul and everyone that we have uh, in there. So uh, there's nothing wrong with celebrating where you're from uh, any more than like it's wrong to celebrate like uh, what, what college you went to. It's just odd to bring God into it. I just don't think God has anything to do with it necessarily. But on the other hand, there's like, it's pretty in vogue on a day like today for people in progressive circles to talk about how particularly heinous and wicked our country is, you know, to highlight the genocidal origins or the fact that we're living on stolen land or that we built an economy very quickly because we didn't pay for labor, otherwise known as chattel slavery, or that to this day our military interventions and aggressions around the world cost innocent lives and are often there just to protect our own economic and oil interests. And those are not unfair things to say. They should cause the sort of like manifest destiny, like mythical sheen uh, on our country to begin to dull a little bit and bring it a bit more in. A reality uh, in these ways, America is not exceptional, except exceptionally ordinary. It's exceptionally weak in some ways, and it's 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 witness in the world. And yet, it's also true that there's been a lot of really good and just and beautiful things to come out of this country. I was listening to NPR this week, and there was a segment where all these people were sharing their naturalization stories—the days that they uh, first became American citizens—and these were people from the global south and from the near and the far east and from western europe all people who as they told their stories oftentimes crying on the radio um, about how how much opportunity there was here how 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 good it was to be here what what advantages they had when they became american citizens and part of us being willing to be open-minded people which i know we're all trying to be is letting those stories and experiences have as much weight and bearing as other stories and experiences that might feel like they have conflicting uh, narratives Um, It is true that there are many good and beautiful things in the world today because of the freedom of thought and expression and religion and what these things have brought uh, locally and abroad. So whether you find today an easy day to celebrate or an easy day to criticize, uh, whether you find the sort of juxtaposition with Juneteenth from just two weeks ago with July 4th today to be a strange and rather odd sort of conflict or whether you can see them as two points in a very long and complicated story that has had both dark chapters and light chapters to it, Um, I hope that what you're able to do today, or what we're able to do, is to listen to one another. Because when we refuse to listen to one another, we become tribalistic. We become self-righteous. And it's, it's what is currently tearing our country apart, actually, is our unwillingness to actually open our minds and our ears to one another. When we don't do that, it incites violence in our hearts, and it makes us very much not like Christians. If you're in here and you're not a Christian and you wonder, how, do, how does the church, what do Christians think about American citizenship, or, or any citizenship for that matter? Um, I can't speak for all Christians. I can only speak for what I think all Christians should hold to in this, and that is that any, any uh, citizenship uh, should be held loosely. It's it should not be the the primary or even the secondary or e- even like the like the twentieth most important thing uh, about us. That the most important thing about us is our citizenship in another kingdom, and that we are meant to live in a place and be for that place. I believe we're called to love that place in the active sense of the word, like actively love our country. And in that sense, there's a lot uh, to love. But our primary allegiance. Never goes to a secular state, ever, 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 ever. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. The Bible tells us that the freedom that we have, it says, it says this in Galatians, so freedom is a big word, right? America, freedom. The freedom you have is meant to be used to make you a servant. So when you are given liberty, that liberty is immediately laid down to become the slave of another. That's why you have freedom. And what we do instead in this country, and and I guess probably other countries, is we view our rights, we view our protections as something to be hoarded, something to be fought for. Rather, the Bible says all the freedoms you have are tools for the sake of your neighbor. If you have liberty, it exists so that you can serve another person and be a blessing to another person, not so you can simply protect your own self. The core sin behind nationalism is self-protection. And we just We just want to say that self-protection has no no, uh, role in the way of the cross. There's no civic ideology that can get you out of going to the cross with Jesus if you're a Christian. Self-protection has no place. So rather, uh, the Christian should be more concerned about the rights of our neighbors being trampled than about preserving our own rights. So if anything, today, whatever you do, I hope you eat watermelon. I hope you have a good day. I hope we can find ways to rest and celebrate and remember that we're part of this very broad and beautiful and complicated uh, family as, as people who, who call this place home. And yet, I hope that most of all, what we can be most thankful for is that God has given us so much freedom so that we can serve people. That that's actually the gift of being uh, in this country, is that the, ser- the freedom exists for the sake of others. All right, if you have Bibles, open in Mark 6. That was the first sermon. We're going to do a second one really quick. Um, Mark chapter 6. We are in the Gospel of Mark today. I'm going to read a little, little chunk, and then we'll, we'll pray. Jesus left that place, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all of this? What is the wisdom that has been given to him? "'What deeds of power are being done by his hands? "'Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary?' "'You know, the virgin.'" That's the subtext. "'And his brother James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? "'And are not his sisters here with us?' "'And they took offense at him. "'And then Jesus said to them, "'Prophets are not without honor, "'except in their hometown and among their own kin "'and in their own house. "'And he could do no deed of power there.'" Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. <laughs> That's it. Um, slow day. And he was amazed at their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, we do thank you for this day, this weekend, the chance to, to just to breathe a little bit, to rest, to be with folks. Uh, thank you for the beautiful weather. Thank you, Lord, for the chance to, um, to celebrate. Help us, Lord, to, to celebrate the things that your heart celebrates. Help us to be in alignment with your view of the world and in even our, our the place we call home. God, we ask that we would um, that we would above all things be a people of your kingdom. That it would be the thing that we wake up under, the banner that is over our lives, that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and that that would give actually all the definition to how we live out any other. Uh, any other context that we find ourselves in. Help us today, Lord, to just receive. We pray for open ears. We ask that we would receive the word of Christ to us today. And we ask these things in his good name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which is a town that you never would have heard of if he hadn't been from there, because it was a tiny little backwater town in Redneck, Israel. It was so obscure, so insignificant, that it was made fun of by people from other small towns. That's how minuscule and 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 just, just forgotten or forgettable this place was. Um, there's a uh, so you would think that maybe like Jesus returning. So remember, he's been in Nazareth for 30 years when he starts his ministry, roughly 30 years. So him returning home probably, I would think, would have been like a big deal. Sort of like the varsity quarterback going back home to the small town in Texas, you know, and everyone stays up late at night and recounts the year the Nazareth Nuggets went undefeated. Like that's, that's the, the scene that you would expect. And instead he comes back and he's treated so poorly that he actually quips, only in someone's hometown could they be so dishonored as this. So what is what is going on here? Jesus is back home and he's in the synagogue and he's talking to the, the people of his hometown and they are offended at him it says. They were offended. Now, why were they offended at him? Well, Jesus says it's because he has come as a prophet. A prophet is not without honor, he says. So Jesus has come and he understands himself in this context as being there with a the prophetic ministry. Now, what is a prophet? Prophet is not a fortune teller. That's what we think. Oh, prophets, they tell the future. No. I mean, there's a couple of times in the Old Testament where prophets said this is going to happen. But the majority of a prophet's ministry is to take the world as it is and God's vision of the world and to put them next to each other, side by side, so that you can see how starkly different they are. And to call the people in this world, the status quo, to amend their ways, to change their life, this is what a prophet does. The, the rabbi Abraham Heschel says it this way. He says, a prophet is to bring the world into divine focus. So you're gonna, you see the world and all of a sudden like it pops into another focus because now you're seeing it through God's eyes. If you flip through your Old Testament, the big chunk in the middle of, uh, from Isaiah to Malachi, it's the largest part of your Bible, what you will see in the prophets is that um, they are there to challenge, by and large, the status quo. Why? Because under the status quo, the poor are trampled. The marginalized and the immigrant, the widows and the orphans are pushed to the side. God's laws are forgotten. Uh, Under the status quo, if you have enough money and enough lawyers, you can do anything and get away with it. Enter Bill Cosby to the scene. Uh, as uh, Brian Stevenson said, we have a system of justice in our country that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. And we saw it again this week. Like, and so the prophet comes into this context and says, "This is unjust. This is broken. This is flawed. This is wrong." And when God's laws are trampled, the nations suffer. When God's laws of Sabbath are trampled, for example, the workers in the field suffer. When Sabbath is, is trampled under, the earth, the, 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 the fields themselves suffer, the families suffer. So a prophet would come with a word and say, this is how God designed us to live. And when we live in this way, all people flourish. When we live in this way, everyone has food, everyone has a roof, everyone has a family, everyone has a livelihood. When we don't live this way, we languish. And Jesus is here essentially to do that. He's there to tell them what it is in their life, their mindset that needs to be challenged. Now, we don't know what he says from Mark 6, but we do know if we go to Luke 4, which is a parallel telling of the same story, where he goes into the synagogue, where he spent hundreds of hours as a little kid. And he goes in there, and he opens up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he turns to where? He, he turns the scroll to Isaiah 61. I don't know how scrolls work. And and he reads about the Spirit of the Lord being upon me, and I'm here to preach good news to the poor, and so on, and declare the, the year of captivity, a, a, a jubilee, and so on. And they're like, this is awesome. We love this guy. He's so great. And then he says, ah, so you understand I'm here to do something prophetic. And then he begins to challenge their racism. And they, throw, they try to throw him off a cliff. That's what happens at the end of Luke 4. They're like, oh, wait, we didn't want that kind of spirit of the Lord on you. We wanted you to come and tell us what we were hoping you would tell us about ourselves. And Jesus says that is not what a prophet is here to do. A prophet is here to speak a word that is going to challenge you, to call you into a better way, a new way. God's way. And they dismiss him. They don't refute what he's saying. They just dismiss him by saying, aren't you like Mary's kid? Don't we know your sisters? In other words, they use familiarity as a way to dismiss him, which may not seem like that, that resonates with you. But I, as I was thinking about this text this week, I know that there are ways that I just out of hand dismiss Jesus when he says something that I don't want him to say. When I come across something in the Bible that is uncomfortable or that challenges something, I just find ways to sort of metabolize it in such a way that I don't have to deal with it. I have my own ways of saying, aren't you Mary's boy? And therefore, I don't have to deal with you. And that's exactly what happens in this context. When we do that with Jesus, whether it's some... some writing from Paul, or it's the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, when we do that with Jesus, we are essentially asking for God to give us a kingdom, but without a king. Now, the thing that makes a kingdom a kingdom is that it has a king. That's why it's a kingdom. It has a sovereign, someone that's ruling over it, someone whose word is final and authoritative, who doesn't get questioned. It's not a coachdom. It's not an advisor dumb. It's a person who has sovereign rule and reign who gets to say, this is what it is. And most of us love the kingdom of God. We love the justice of it. We love the flourishing. We love shalom. We love the ideas that prop up and, and are embodied in the kingdom of God. But when it comes to having an actual king, like a real ruler over my life who actually has say over what I do and don't do... What I, how I live, what I do with my wealth, what I do with my, my privilege, what I do with my influence, uh, that's a far more uncomfortable thing uh, for me. Jesus is, is in this scene, he's I think in some ways acting out what is most of our lives with God, which is that I agree with the things of God that I agree with. <laughs> but the things that God says that I don't agree with, I find ways of refuting, dismissing, uh, and casting aside. It's not a question of whether or not you or I will be offended by Jesus. I've been reading through the Bible in a year for the last few years. Before then, I did the daily uh, office, and I was kind of all over the place. But I've just been reading sort of through the whole thing. And I would just say, like, everyone should do that um, at least once. And when you do, you are going to be confronted by how uncomfortable large chunks of this book are. You're just going to again and again come across things. and You're going to go... That is uncomfortable that uh, that I wish God was I wish that that wasn't in there I wish God wasn't like that. I wish Jesus hadn't said that. I read somewhere this week, someone's like, all the red letters in the Bible, meaning all of Jesus' words, are all about peace and harmony. It's like, no, it's not. They're not about that. I mean, Jesus is constantly challenging things. He says at one point, he says, don't think I came to bring peace, but a sword. I came to light a fire on the earth, he says. In other words, I'm a polarizing figure. I'm going to create create division. It's one of the things I'm going to do in my uh, wake. Every nation, every culture has always found things about the teachings of the gospel that are confrontational and challenging. In our context here in the West, especially in a more progressive place like Decatur in East Atlanta, um, there are... The, the thing that ruffles our feathers today is the, is the, the teachings on the, on the sexual ethic of the Bible. Or we don't like the way that the Bible deals with materialism. We're too uncomfortable with that because we're far too committed to our own uh, comfort and, and leisure. Or we don't like the exclusive claims of Jesus in the Bible. We want to sort of uh, take those apart and deconstruct them so we don't have to address them. But we love that Jesus says, forgive people. We love that he's like, love your enemies. We think that's wonderful. He goes after the the lost sheep. The father runs to the prodigal son. We're like, that's the Jesus I'm here for all day long. But the other parts, we just find ways around them. But if you go to the Near East, they have no problem with the sexual ethic of the Bible. They have no problem with the exclusive claims of Christianity. But the forgiving of your enemies which is an assault on my honor, that's a totally different thing. So in other words, if you read the Bible, you're going to be challenged by something, no matter what your context background is. And the question is, when that happens, when my worldview bumps up against the worldview of scripture, whose worldview needs to change? Who's Who's right? Jesus is calling you and me into a, a relationship in which he gets to speak across our lives and say a thing, and we have to decide, am I going to listen to it or not? Am I, gonna, am I going to submit? Um, Tim Keller, pastor out of New York, he says, the gospel of Jesus Christ does offend everybody, but it offends the part of your heart that's making the world a miserable place. It offends the part of your heart that needs to be challenged, or there's no hope. For the world, we are um, in our day and age far too easily offended. Most of the most of the dialogue in, going on today in like sort of the public square is just. Touchy, easily annoyed, easily irritated people who are constantly set off by one another and respond in chronic anxiety and then cancel one another and then form little tribes in which we tell each other that we're right and they're dumb. And that's most of the discourse going on civically today. And we as Christians need to understand that, first of all, not only is that uh, Not helpful, it's actually counter to the way God has made us to be that we are called to be open-eared people, listening people, and most specifically to the words and the teachings of God and Christ. To respond to these things with openness and humility and to let God speak over my life in ways that might be uncomfortable. Now, as I talked to folks recently, I've been talking to a lot of folks recently. I would say one of the things that I have heard from people the most, if there was like a word, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if there was like a word for where we are right now, it would be exhausted. And and I don't just mean physically exhausted, although some of you are, but I mean like spiritually exhausted. Um, We all entered this crazy year. A lot of us ended up taking our faith, which was sort of all bound up in and supported by a set of rhythms that were suddenly gone. And we just sort of put our faith on the shelf and didn't, because who wants to go on Zoom again? And so we just sort of like waited this thing out. And then like we come out of the bunker and we start to try to pick this thing up again and try to act normal again. And it turns out that like that that like there isn't. It's it's harder to be a Christian than I thought it was going to be. It's harder to pick up these habits than that I put down than I thought and than I thought it would be. Most of us have not processed what happened over the last year and a half, not with any real depth. Um, We experienced collective uh, low-level trauma, the entire world did, for 16 months. The entire way of life was was shut down and canceled. I read an article recently about how people who have been fully vaccinated um, and who have the clearance from the CDC to take their masks off outdoors and in all sorts of, of indoor environments continue to wear them all the time because they're afraid. Because we, just, we, we, are not, we're not, we haven't dealt with what happened. Most of us have, not, uh, have not, not dealt with the coping mechanisms that we picked up during the last year and a half that kind of can continue to carry us into this, this new season. And so why do I say all that? I say it because my guess is the last thing you want to hear right now is a message about prophetic ministry and the hard, challenging word of Jesus over you. Like probably what you really wish I could say right now is like Jesus has got you in his arms and you're a little lamb, he's feeding you carrots and it's gonna be okay. And, and, and listen, I understand and that's, that's also in there, not the carrots part, but I, I, do under, I do understand that. But here's what I just would say to that. Wouldn't you rather have the real thing you know, we, we, follow, we follow Jesus and worship him not because we think he is like the best idea, but because he's the real experience. He's the real revelation of God on the earth and nothing less. Um, in Matthew chapter 11, John the baptizer, the cousin of Jesus, is in jail. And he sends disciples to Jesus because he has a question. And the question is essentially, are you real? Are, are you the one we were waiting for? And he's, he's saying this because, like all of us, he's like, I'm paying for this right now. Like, it's costing me something right now for me to think that you are who you say you are. Are you the real deal? And Jesus responds to this. He says, tell him what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news to them. And John would have known exactly what he meant by that. Yes, the answer is. The answer is yes. The prophetic ministry of Elijah is alive on the earth. Like God is moving, the dead are raised, the gospel is preached to the poor. Yes, but then he says at the very end, and blessed is anyone who is not offended, who does not take offense at me. All of us are going to be confronted by Jesus, but Jesus says blessed is the one who is confronted and then stays, but doesn't turn as so many do and walk away. What are you walking away to? So many of us, when we come across the hard teachings of Christ, and there are many of them, What we do is we choose to instead create a God in our own image. There is no such thing as a God made in our own image. It's just a figment of your imagination. It's us taking our best ideas and wishes and sort of casting it in the sky and hoping that it's real. But we believe as Christians that we hold on to a real and living God who is going to confront and challenge us because he's not you. He's someone else. He's his own person and he has his own kingdom and he calls us to live in that kingdom in submission to him and nothing less than that. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the book, The Silver Chair, which they're all my favorite books, so it's my favorite one, Um, and there's this scene in it, and if you haven't read those books yet, it'll really benefit you to read those books if you're going to come to this church. I'm just going to tell you because they show up a lot. So... (laughs) In the silver chair, there is this scene where Jill, uh, this girl, is at a river. She's at a stream. You probably have heard this if you've ever been to church because we tell this story a lot. But she's at the stream, and she's bent down, and she looks up suddenly and sees a lion. And she doesn't know it's Aslan because she she doesn't know that yet. We know it's Aslan, so we're like, it's going to be okay. But she doesn't know this. So she gets freaked out, and then she's like, "Um, will you please go away? And the lion just growls. And Lewis says, as if, to say, as, as if to say, it would be easier to move this mountain than to move me right now. And she says, well, I'm very thirsty. She says, if I come forward, will I be safe? And he says, there's no promises. And then she says, well, what if you swallow me up? Have you ever eaten little girls before? And he says, I have swallowed whole girls and boys and nations and empires. And she says, well, won't you turn away? He says, no. So then she says, well, I'm going to have to go find another stream. And he says, there is no other stream. Friends, there is no other stream. The hard teachings of Jesus come to us, but they come as a word of life because there is no other stream. And when it comes to us, the question is not, do I like this? But what will I do when the prophetic word of Jesus comes to my heart? Will I choose to remain soft and to open my hands and to believe that I'm actually at the only living stream? I know that when we talk about Jesus being the only stream, there's something about that that makes some of us uncomfortable because there's a real risk in that. And also, um, probably for a number of us in here, we haven't experienced him as real at all. Like it's been something we've just hoped was real. Some of us have experienced Jesus in, in ways that feel undeniable and real. And I just want to say um, I remember Jenny Morton, she shared her testimony on our Easter service video, which is buried somewhere on YouTube if you want to go find it. It's worth watching. She talked about the experience of being at the base of Mount Everest. And having a moment where all the years of questioning and sort of banging at the door and wondering, like, why aren't you saying anything? If you're real, why aren't you doing anything? And then all of a sudden, God just chose in a little tiny way, like a soft little voice to, like, answer the question in a moment. I remember when he answered the question for me, and it was like, you are real. And I'll just say, as your pastor, there's nothing I want more for you than that. Because it it becomes the thing that you can return to your whole life. So when you're standing here, you're like, what am I doing here A church singing to who? It's like, oh, that's right, to to the real and living water of life. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would please manifest yourself in ways that we can't create. God, we are not interested in self-fabricated experiences. We're not interested in emotional experiences. We are interested in the living God. Our hearts, Lord, are bent towards you. Our our eyes are gazed on you. Please, Jesus, come and be known. This week over my friends in here, I pray that you, Lord, would meet us in the small steps that we are able to take this week towards you. I pray that you would meet us in those places that we would know that we are dealing with reality. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna pray a prayer together. This is called a collect. You may have noticed we put these up every week, and you're like, "Is that that's a collect?" It's called a collect. It's a good Anglican word for you. Um, it was new to me when I became an Anglican. It's called a collect because what it does at the end of the service is it takes all of the things we've said and all of the things we've sung about and heard, and it collects them in one final little thing that we all get to pray with one voice. It collects our prayers. So, would you pray with me? Amen. 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 Grace and peace to you, loved ones. Um, I hope you have a wonderful holiday weekend. You are loved, and I'll see you really soon. Blessings to you.: Hello friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking His kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, emmanuelatl.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.